At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello again, everyone. It's David Nutt here. It's another of the Drug Science Podcasts. And tonight we are listening to one of the pioneers of psychedelic research, and particularly in relation to clinical practice and clinical experience in the world today. It's Peter Gasser from Switzerland. Welcome, Peter. Yes, thank you. Hello, David. Well, it's great to have you on because you have been, in some ways, a sole voice in the wilderness for quite a while. And uh, I want (laughs) to explore with you about why you started off in this field and obviously come on to what you're doing. So why don't you take us back to the beginning? I mean, are you a doctor or a psychologist? Yes, I'm a medical doctor. I'm a psychiatrist. And in Switzerland, it's combined a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. We are both here. And I think there are two important starting points in my work with psychedelics. The first one was the personal one. That started in 1988. It was the first year of my specialization in psychiatry and psychotherapy. So I was a young doctor. And um, in that time, there was an exceptional permission in Switzerland for five therapists who were allowed to work with MDMA and with LSD for the next five and a half years, yes. And I learned that one who was nearby where I live uh, was one of these five, and I called him if I could come to have uh, an experience. So until then, I had no idea about psychedelic drugs at all. I mean, alcohol was the only drug I knew personally, but I think it could be something adventurous to to have and then... Uh, Yeah, as I said, I was at the beginning of my training. So I I went to him and his wife and they did a a group therapy meeting and I had my first MDMA experience that was quite overwhelming in the sense of that I really learned that I am a human being with a lot of, (laughs) I would say, uh, inner topics to work on and to learn about and even to be uh, with the help of a therapist to do all that. And this was a, a very intense time then for the next three years. And it, meanwhile, there was also a training starting in Switzerland for uh, for therapists, a three years training. I attended this training as well and became a member of the Swiss Medical Society for, we say psycholytic, but it's basically the same like psychedelic therapy, which I am still member and president of. And the second starting point was in 2006, when there was the 100th birthday of Albert Hoffmann, and there was a a big conference in Basel for celebrating his 100th birthday with, I don't know, more than 1,000 people coming from all over the world. And at the end of this conference, we wrote an open letter to several administration of health in Europe, even in the United States and Canada, I think, and the Swiss 
Minister of Public Health, he gave an answer, uh, a short letter, and he said when the requirements ethically and scientifically would be given, they would give permission for a study with LSD. So this was the start. We thought when this is true, what this man writes, then we can start. And I have to say, yes, it was true, although it was also good luck. I I think it was it was several obstacles to take. And I learned that, for instance, the ethics committee, so they had a, a long, long, long discussion about my project. And finally, they had to vote. And their, the vote was, uh, I think we say even, there were yeah, the pros yeah. and the cons were the same number. And so the president, finally, she decided then for for the, the project. And that's, I think if she would have decided no, then I wouldn't have been able to start. Yes. Well, we'll come back to ethics committees a bit later. I've had some interesting experience with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but let's, can imagine. Let's go back to 1988 then. And what was the reason for this initiative of five therapies? I mean, who was driving that? Yeah, honestly said, no one knows exactly why that happened. And there was a lot guessing about it. And even the people, if you ask the people from the health and administration today, even then they don't know why that happened. Because one, one possibility is that the person in charge to decide he was just before retirement. And maybe it was just that he wanted to make this the thing go, go away from his desk. And he decided then uh, to allow these people to do it. To shut them up, huh? Yes. Yeah. Get on with it. Yeah. Get, stop yeah. badgering me. Yeah. Something like that, because he he didn't uh, make a record on that and then say what was his what was his um, kind of doing that decision and so on. And then they, these five people started. Unfortunately, two years later, there was a, a deathly incident in one of the groups of one of these therapists. A woman died in a workshop. But there was no LSD and no MDMA in, in charge or, or uh, responsible for this death. There was a, an investigation about it, of course, but it showed up that no drugs were involved. She had a, a heart failure that was undiscovered until that moment. But this incident was taken as a possibility to stop this experiment. And then they had long negotiations with the health administration. And they said, it's not ethical to stop all the treatments now. And so they said, okay, until 93, they can finish all the treatments. They should not begin new treatments, but they can finish. And then that's what happens. And then at the end of 93, everything was stopped, unfortunately. So the health department was supplying the medicine, the MDMA and the LSD? That was quite easy at that moment. So these therapists, they went to a Swiss company, a small lab somewhere near Zurich, I guess, and they ordered MDMA and LSD and they could supply it. So they had only to get the, the paper from the health authorities to, in order to buy that, but it was quite simple to get it mm -hmm. at that time. Yes, so do you think it was because... Switzerland had invented LSD, that you were ahead of the game? Yeah, that's a difficult question. I'm often asked this and honestly said, I don't know. In some way, I think, yes, yes, it's because of that. And I mean, Albert Hoffmann, he was a very 
a famous person. Everywhere. He had a lot of, of friends in the sense he was quite normal in the sense he was a, a scientist and he was inventor of LSD and he talked to everyone and he was an officer in the Swiss army. So he was a quite a very well integrated person. And I think that helped. And then Switzerland always has been a research country for pharmaceutical research. I think that helped also. Switzerland is small. Maybe that helped also. There is that the, the ways are short. And then in the end, I think it was also luck. It was good luck that the, the right person was at the right place at the right moment. I think that helped also. <laughs> I have to say, I have to say, you know, I think now Britain has left the EU. I'm trying to persuade the authorities in Britain that we should be remodeling our, our pharmacological research along the Swiss model, which is this is more rational and, and, and much less fearful about innovation. So don't know if I'll succeed, but certainly, you know, the, the example you've just given me is a an example of the very special ability of, of Switzerland to do research, which no one else has managed to do, which is LSD. So I'll, I'll, I may even come for you for guidance on that. Was there anything written up about those uh, the original five therapists and their outcomes? Was there much research done? Honestly said, very little, because they had these five had no obligations to give any reporting. So it was really? a carte. I think you can say carte blanche. Is that correct? Yeah, carte blanche. It's a carte blanche. They they got in doing treatments in their own responsibility. So. For them, that was fantastic because they really could do treatments. For us coming after them, it is a bit, yeah, it's a pity that there is not more written about it. What I have done in 94, I, I established a questionnaire and mm -hmm. I sent it to all these patients. It was 170 patients and 120 gave a response. And from that, we have some data what people think, what what it is, what, what it was all about, and what was the reason for therapy, and if it helped, and so, and those who answered, which are sixty-five percent, those who answered, they gave a very positive feedback about these treatments, except one or two. More than ninety percent said it, it helped a lot, or that it helped in a in a good way. And were there learnings from that that helped you in your next stage? I mean. Thinking about what kind of psychotherapy was done, for instance, or what dosing was used. I mean, did they use different doses? Yes, they used different doses and different substances. So they had a model. Yeah, I th mostly they began with MDMA for two, three, four sessions. And then they changed to LSD for the next four, five, six sessions. That was the, a common model. And in between, there was psychotherapy. So in an average, these people had... 70 psychotherapy sessions, talking sessions over three years. And in these three years, they had seven sessions with LSD or MDMA or both. So this was the, that was the average. And the model, most of them also did um, group psychotherapy. They did it in groups that was uh, done right from the beginning. I mean, what we, what we learned from that, it, that it works, I could say. So we were convinced that this is a, a treatment that works and we would like to continue. We then started a, a protocol for psilocybin in depression, which in 2002 was refused by the ethics committee. So, yeah, because they said 
there are already enough treatment possibilities <laughs> for uh, for depression. There is no need for uh, for more treatment. What is a completely? Yeah, I don't know what the right word. Bullshit, isn't it? Bullshit is a good word. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, the, the problem is you cannot appeal for that, for the decision. It is it is a final decision. So it was, our project was stopped. We had no no way to, to improve it or to change it or whatever. It was a depressive moment for us because we, we thought we had done everything right. We had a good protocol, really, I can say that. And mm. they refused for reasons they had. I remember with our first, depression protocol. I remember the third time I'm in the ethics committee and I'm looking at them and all they're saying is it's too dangerous. And I'm saying, yeah, but depression is a dangerous disorder. And in the end, they said, well, we can only let you do a safety study. We cannot let you do an efficacy study. And I remember thinking, well, that's better than nothing. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> so I took it. <laughs> and so you have done it. Okay. So we did it. So we did it. Yeah. And then the but of course, it was remarkably effective. And uh, but the ethic is the power they have. And the, at one point, I said to them, "Huge room, you know, maybe fifteen people, and, you know, everything, you know, renal physicians and cardiologists." And I looked at them. I said, "Look, is anyone here a psychiatrist? Has anyone ever ever treated depression?" And a woman put her hand up and she said, "Well, I'm a GP." <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, "Please, please, you know, just do me a trust me." You know, by that point, I was. You know, nearly 60, I've been creating depressed patients for Yeah, You think they trust me, but, it, you know, they didn't. They, the, the fear of the drugs was just so overwhelming. But anyway, we got through. But you managed to get through with LSD, which is some no one else has ever achieved that. So tell me about that next study thing. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say, I mean, your study was then the basis for all the psilocybin research on, on depression. I mean, that's fantastic, isn't it? And I mean, we didn't do it. It was sad. But then two years later, in 2004, a friend of mine, colleague, he got a, a MDMA a study approved in, in post-traumatic stress disorder in collaboration with MAPS. I don't have to explain who MAPS is, I guess, or is it for the audience? No, oh, explain, explain who MAPS is. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Better safe than sorry. <laughs> MAPS is an American, uh, U.S. American Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's a, a private-owned, non-profit organization. And they started, uh, I think, in the end of 1990s or at the beginning of 2000 with MDMA investigations on in the treatment of post-traumatic stress. And my friend and colleague, Peter Owen, did a small pilot study on the same topic here in Switzerland with the help of MAPS. And then in 2000, which was really a breakthrough, that meant the Swiss authorities are willing to give permission to such studies. So that was a a positive signal, um, undoubtedly. And then in 2006, as I told you before, then was this um, conference in Basel and I met... Rick Doblin, who is the founder and president of, of MAPS. And we went on a walk on the snowy Swiss mountains. It was in January. And he said, listen, if you will get approved an LSD study in Switzerland, we will support it financially and also by our possibilities to, to support you. And, and just that's what we decided, we both. I try to get the study approved in Switzerland and we he would give the money for that study. And that's what happened in end of 2007. I had the full approval for the study. And then in, in spring, 
Albert Hoffmann was still alive at that time, and he he was just he died just I mean I think two or three weeks before we have the treatment of the first patient on the on the study, but he had all he saw that now with LSD, the research and the, what he said that. LST is coming back to medicine again. That's what he said, and he he saw that ha that might happen now, and I th he was very pleased. Of course, I mean it was a after after all his sorrow ch child began to to develop to a normal child again. <laughs> well, quite quite. I mean, he must have been so sad by the fact that they'd made such a lot of progress in the uh, in the fifties and sixties, and then it all goes under the Nixon kosh of the war on drugs. Yeah. It must have been such a blow to him. I'm glad he lived long enough to realise it or to see it come yes. back. <laughs> yes, me too. So tell us what you did then with this first study. We did a pilot study with 12 participants, 12 people uh, on end-of-life anxiety. That means people who are severely ill, suffering from life-threatening diseases like cancer and other life-threatening diseases and having, of course, existential distress they could apply for the for the study we did, and then we treated them two times with LSD or with placebo. And those who got the placebo then finally could cross over, so that everyone had the possibility to get two times two hundred micrograms of LSD. And this study started in in two thousand eight. I learned that there was a, a really a huge interest on of the public also to know what's going on. And the first LSD study after more than thirty five years uh, worldwide and all that was was a big thing. And and the, the media came to me and I wanted uh, interviews. And I was I was a bit irritated because I thought you should not talk about a research project until it is uh, finished. And I complained to um, Rick Doblin then and said, told him what, what it is all about. And Rick told me, yes, you should do that. That is public education. It is important to talk about what you are doing in order that the, the public opinion and all the prejudice that is around can change by the time. And I started to do that public task when if you was what's on and in fact uh, i think rick doblin is right it was very important to talk about this work that in the last 10 years really a, a lot changed i think the public opinion and now it's it's a big curiosity and we are talking about the, the psychedelic renaissance and all that stuff so today i mean it's no more a problem to talk about this work but 10 years ago was a bit different. And then in 2014, we, we published the study in a scientific journal. And we also, in the same year, applied for individual permission with the authorities, with the Federal Office of Public Health. And they gave us individual permission on demand when we can, um, we had to report of a patient this, this patient is suffering from, let's say, that depression, and he was treated several times with different treatments, medication or psychotherapy or whatever, and we think that he would benefit from MDMA or LSD therapy. And from 2014, they gave permission in these cases, which is quite near to what was happening in the late 80s and early 90s in Switzerland, but now it is it's more restricted. We have to go to get Give, the approval is given one by one and not in general, and we have to report regularly also. So 
So how long does it take to get permission then? They are quite quick, two weeks. Oh, that's good. That's very good. Yes, it's very good, really. They are quite open and in the what they can do in the legal framework, they think that's an important thing going on and what is possible should they will not should happen in that sense. I I experienced the collaboration with our Ministry of Health. Can any psychiatrist do it? Yeah, basically any psychiatrist can do it, but not anyone would get it. I mean, you should prove that you are in some way experienced and you have uh, an idea about what is going on here. So it's not a, a pure application of a medication. It's more than that. It's it's more like a psychotherapy and you should you should show that you are able to do a, a treatment like that. But then I, I basically everyone can do it. So I started in 2014. I was the, the first one, but now we are maybe about 20, 15 to 20 therapists in Switzerland who who have holders of these permissions. And maybe we have treated uh, around, yes, 100 patients in these six years. So it's a small number. However, it's a big number in the sense that it is possible to treat people with psychedelics outside of, of, re of research projects, which has the advantage of making more therapy rather than research. Hi, it's David Nutt here again. I want to take a moment to thank all of the drug science community members. In a world of paid sponsorships, political and commercial interference, drug science is and always will be independent. If you value the show as an educational resource and want to help keep us going, you can do so at drugscience.org.uk. Without our community, the dissemination of unbiased information would not be possible. By becoming a drug science community member, you help to create a world where drug control is rational and evidence-based, where drug use is better informed and drug users are understood, where drugs are used to heal, not harm. Furthermore, by becoming a premium community member, you will receive a signed copy of my autobiography, access to exclusive events. At the end of the season, we will be hosting an exclusive Q&A podcast episode with all of our premium community members, where you can ask me anything. You can find out how to do this in the show notes. So now... Thank you, and back to the show. No, absolutely. So you're really the the only country in the world that's actually broken through that barrier of going from research into actually using it clinically. So what kind of criteria do the government expect you to have applied to treatments before going to this? Yes. So they say people that must be people that suffer. So it, they have you have to show that there is a, a suffering. It's not for personal growth or for something like that. And it is not a first-line treatment. So you have to, to tell that there have been other treatments which were not um, sufficiently uh, helping these people. But then with these two conditions, it is quite open. So it doesn't say I have done a study with end-of-life anxiety and they would give only for end-of-life anxiety these permissions. So I can apply for a, a person with obsessive compulsive disorder or with post-traumatic stress disorder and LSD. So we can, we have also, or cluster headache, for example, I've, I've got permissions already. So we have the possibility to prove our method also with the diagnosis and, and, and conditions that have not been researched yet in order to get an idea about might it help or not. That is remarkable. I hadn't realized it was so broad in its applicability. 
Just a couple of questions on that then, because I, I would be really keen to have something similar happening in the UK. So is there a level of pre-treatment that you have to show has failed or do they just trust you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's maybe a, a little bit typical Swiss. The first thing is you have to start small and when nothing bad happens, then they trust you. So when I, when I wanted to start with group therapy, they have been suspicious about groups because they said, oh, isn't that, isn't that chaotic or dangerous? And can you handle more than one person at one time? And I think I thought, yes, that, that can go. And we have already experienced that. And then they, they said, okay, do it with two people. And then I said, no, two people is not a group. That's a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Then they agreed on doing it with three and I did it with three and I reported them about that, that it, it went as it was all okay and nothing dangerous happened. And from then on, they said, okay, you can do group therapy and, and now it's no more questioned if it goes the right way. I mean, if something severe would happen, I would report. I mean, I have nothing to hide and I would understand that maybe we have not 100% security. And of course, I mean, there can be side effects, there can be difficult situations. I would report on that. The permission we get is for one year, and then you can get a prolongation. One year per person. Yes. But then you can get prolongation when you have to report, and you give the report what is the course of the treatment, and you have to tell why you think that it should go on, and they give it for another year, and so on, and so on. So it's not limited to the number of repetitions. Do they specify how many treatments are allowed in a year? No, they don't, to my surprise and to also, I mean, I say in my uh, experience, more than, let's say, four or five in one year makes no sense. So I wouldn't treat people every second week with that. So, and then, I mean, I told them and I think this is common It is common knowledge also here. The other, the other therapists here in Switzerland do it the same in the same way. And so until now, I mean, it's not a problem. That's actually remarkable. And we're teeing up to do a, an OCD study with psilocybin, but, but you've got some experience already then with, uh, with LSD and OCD. Can you share that? Yes. So I, it was a young man about, I, yeah, about around 30. And he had a history of 16 years of severe OCD with, I think, two or three hospital uh, inpatient periods. And he was in, in, in several therapies. He had basically all SSRIs used. And still he was very handicapped with his OCD. So he was going under the shower for one hour and could hardly, could hardly leave his, his apartment. And he came to us or to me then in the group, into the group. And the first time he was very far away from his emotions in some sense. So his, his first experience was basically all uh, colorful patterns, geometrical patterns and all that stuff. He didn't experience very much. But then by the time he did in, in total, he did four, four LSD experiences with me. And by the time he learned more about, he said he was really seeing under LSD, he was seeing how he, it is a decision. He said then the obsessive compulsive symptom is a decision. And from that on, he was aware that he 
he could decide the other way around. He was not sure that it would work, but he was aware that it could work. And he said in one session, a workshop, he said, I will try now not to, to be uh, spoiled. So he, his anxiety was of being uh, dirty. He would try it. He, when he went to the train, he always was very upset to become dirty. And then he said, I could try it. And I hope and I would like to have some LSD in my pocket that would reassure me that it works. And then finally he managed. But I have to say, he told me then that he himself took LSD at home another five times. And he said, he said that the group, the group was too difficult for me. So it was really too difficult to be in the group. And he said, I was, it was imper- important to learn in the group with me that LSD could be administered safely with him. But then he went home and he did the rest by himself. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that, and he really is cured now. He is having a shower for five minutes. He goes, um, he visits, uh, he, go, he goes to the train, he visits his parents, which was no more possible for years. And I think this was a good course. We had another two patients in the, in the study I am doing now in, um, since 2017, we do a new story, a new study with end of life anxiety, but also nor, let's say normal psychiatric anxiety disorder without um, existential distress or severe somatic disease. And there we had people suffering from anxiety and comorbidity with um, OCD and they had two sessions and both had a benefit, as they said, and, and also what we see, but the, the OCD is, no, is not treated sufficiently. So I think it is necessary more to do more than two, three, four sessions of psilocybin or LSD, maybe five to ten, but then I think we, have, we can have good outcomes. And how do you manage with the fact they have medication? Do you get them off their medication now? Uh, what what kind of medication? Uh, SSRIs. Yeah, we find SSRIs block yeah. the effects of the, uh, yes. the psilocybin. I presume they block the effects of LSD too. Yes, that's true. And we do. And uh, I mean, Matthias Liechti, uh, at, uh, is a pharmacologist in the University of Basel. Now does a he does a study about the effects of SSRIs in healthy volunteer when they get uh, LSD, just to show the effect. But we assume that it's true, the SSRIs are blocking, and we do a pause. Um, they stop SSRIs five, half times before they take LSD. That's normally it's three to five days before they don't take the SSRIs. And with that, that works quite well, we think. Yeah, that's a, yeah we get people off. But some of our OCD patients, you know, they're, just, they're very frightened about coming off. Yeah, that's a problem. Also, the anxiety people, I mean, they are they are frightened to, to taper the medication, which maybe helps a little bit to them. I mean, that's a difficult point. It is a fact. And what about end of life? Now, having, you know, now you're beginning to do those. I mean, is that likely to become something that is accessible to all Swiss fairly soon, do you think? That always seemed to me one of the more compelling indications for LSD. Yes, that's a long story. <laughs> I'm not a psycho-oncologist by training. So when I started the study in 2008, I was not aware what will happen to me and, and how that works. Patients um, with cancer coming to me, taking LSD. And what I learned is that 
mostly these people are psychologically seen healthy people. They have never seen a psychiatrist before because they have had a normal life and all that. And then all of a sudden they, they suffer from cancer and the cancer is changing everything in their lives. And um, it is a normal thing that they have anxiety. I mean, that's the course of this disease. That's not a, it's not a kind of disorder to have anxiety when you have to die. And that was the first thing I learned. These are healthy people coming. They have to deal with existential distress the same, the same way I would have to deal with that if I were at their place. And so in that sense, it was also um, easy in, in the sense of the, this is, they were not chronically ill people who, had, who suffer from decades from the same disorder like OCD or, or long-lasting anxiety disorder. But the treatment is not the healing from the uh, anxiety of dying. So, I mean, it's only becoming more aware of what it means. And people often said, I know that I will have to die, but everyone has to die. I mean, they were more, they were more afraid of suffering before they die. That was a, a regular, a big topic to lose control over the life, to suffer to an extent that is not supportable. And there, I think they had to, to struggle with them sometimes more than with the fact that they would die. That was one of the insights. And then, I mean, the beautiful thing was that people really became aware of the how precious life is. And, and they said, it is it's so clear that I, I want to I want to do what I can do at the moment now. I'm not dead yet. I can meet my friends. I can have a trip. And so just to, to be aware of the, of the way of the important things of life. I think that was one of the, of the issues and people also saying, I became aware that I am more than cancer. So I'm a person more than the disease only. So it's the, the narrowing of the disease went for the focus went became broader and broader. And it's a good treatment for those who want. I think that is not a treatment for everyone because taking LSD always is an adventure. And having an adventure when you are about to die is not for everyone. People more are looking for safety. They, are, they appreciate their families and they look for closeness in their families. And so it's far away to them to, to take LSD, which is a, a big thing. And, and yeah, as I said, this adventure may, may be frightening. But those who did, they appreciate it very much, basically everyone. Well, they're very fortunate to have that choice. Because <laughs> no yeah. very few other people in the world have that, do they? One other thing is um, in terms of, do you think the mechanisms and having comparing what you've just described in terms of end of life versus the effect in, say, a disorder like depression or PTSD, do you think the psychological mechanisms are somewhat different? Not so much different, I think. I think one of the psychological mechanisms, of course, will be what we call the broadening of connectedness. And that's, let's say that people say, maybe here in my room, they see the plant and the plant is moving and the plant is telling them something. And, and this is not, it's not a, a joke. It's, it, it has a meaning to them. It is, it is, it means that I'm, I'm connected to nature. I'm connected to creation. I'm connected to the world out of the isolation of this severe 
diseases they are suffering from. And I think that's basically the same for everyone, cancer patient or, or other people, the same for us all, this, this important feeling of being connected. And then, of course, another factor will be to have some insights. I mean, all of a sudden, it's very clear why you have conflicts with this and that person, or what was the problem with your father a long time before, something like that. That is similar, I mean, to everyone also, if they have these kind of personal history issues. And I mean, everyone has personal history issues. And if they raise and pop up and you have the possibility to go over that together with your therapist, I mean, that can be of great help. But I'm interested going back to the, uh, the 1988 experiment. Yeah. So it was five MDMA sessions first, and then you moved to LSD. What was the thinking behind that? Uh, the thinking behind that was that, and I mean, especially for me, it really was the case. And I think my, ther my therapist thought the same. If you take MDMA, you discover the world of emotions. So it is, it's, it's basically an emotional experience. And for me, as a, a young, bright guy, all doing with his head and all have logical concepts and all that stuff, to learn that an emotion is something in the body that happens in the body and you can feel it. That fear is mm. not a concept, but it is something <laughs> in, in your, <laughs> incorporated that was overwhelming. So I think it was, for me, it, that was good to start with MDMA and to go into the, the realms of, of emotional life, also in the so-called negative emotions like having big anger on my family, on my parents and all that stuff, what I never felt before in that, yeah, especially not in that intensity. And then the, the change to LSD opened up the more, I would say, existential issues, the more, yeah, like spiritual experiences or something like that was more confronting. Of course, I think LSD is much more confrontation. It can be... Um, difficult and can make bring you into fragmentation over hours. So I think it's good to be founded in some way. And the MDMA experience gives you trust to the process and then to go over to the other substances like LSD where it can be quite challenging. Okay, so that, that makes sense of what I, I hear that you're beginning to try to develop a, a combined MDMA LSD therapy program. Is that what, what I read on your website? <laughs> yeah, I think for a lot of patients, this would be a good way also. Now, I mean, I learned in the, in the studies I have done, people start with LSD because it's only about LSD. And then there are, um, most of them are LSD naive. It's the first time in their lives they get LSD and they get a dosage of 200 micrograms of LSD. So this is really can be a kind of bombing, isn't it? It's, it's heavy and it's it can be very difficult for the therapist and of course for the patient as well and i think to have a preparation in, a, in an ongoing therapy with mdma builds some trust trust in these kind of experiences and then you go the next step to the substance which is maybe uh, uh, more difficult to handle no it makes perfect sense i think well good luck to you it's a very exciting program you're developing and thank you <laughs> I look forward to seeing here yeah, how it rolls out. No, it's uh, I hadn't realised that it was so founded in those those early uh, experiences. So, one other question: Do you have any views about microdosing? Yeah, I'm often asked about this. I'm, I really I don't like the topic that much. One thing is 
it's mostly outside of medicational issues. So if people take that for enhancement of their possibilities for being more creative or being more uh, concentrated and, and all sorts of, of that stuff of personal improvement, that's completely outside medicine, I think. Then there, there, the more medical indications like microdosing for depression, which is an issue, first of all, I think it should be researched if that what is the placebo um, effect on that i'm sure there is but i'm quite sure that it is not only placebo and i think there is a lot of talking about microdosing without knowing and i think first we should know more and then we can discuss better thank you yeah and i want to also to finish by reflecting on the media so you think the swiss media are on side now you won them over have you peter <laughs> I I learned that I would say basically everyone who came to me was just curious to learn about me and my method and, and what I'm doing and the work. And I mean, that's that's a good situation with work with media. They didn't come to show that I'm a, a drug addictive, people making addicts out of my treatment. They had no suspicion about my integrity. And I think in that I learned that it is quite easy. I talk to them what I'm doing and they they report on what they learned with me. And so I think that got an information that is less uh, based on prejudice that people are reading that. Sounds to me you have a, a slightly more mature media than we have in Britain. But again, <laughs> there are many advantages of being in Switzerland. <laughs> That's possible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I know that can be very hard. And I mean... I was never in that situation, but I think when media want to prove that you are bad, they feel, they will find a way that you are bad, isn't it? Yes. Well, Switzerland, as I said, I've been impressed by your uh, rationality about research, and particularly into these drugs. I've always been impressed with your ability to allow people to die when they want to. We still can't have a debate in Britain about assisted dying without people getting hysterical. So I think, you know, it's a great place for you to be doing your research. It wouldn't have happened probably if you weren't in Switzerland. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing with me today and the, and the other listeners. It's been really illuminating to catch up on you, given that I've sort of followed your work for many years, but we've never actually met. So it's been an absolute delight and pleasure to talk to you today. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Drug Science Podcast. Thank you for listening. But before you go... I would just like to share with you a question from our drug science community members. Recently, we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything Part 2. Enjoy. Hi, David. Uh, again, thank you for everything you do. You. My question, I, I remember reading some time ago from the previous um, era of psychedelic research that there was a potentially a relationship between IQ, intelligence and psychedelic experience. And Amanda Fielding, uh, Fielding uh, hinted about it on the most recent podcast about her experience playing the game Go. Yeah. And certainly it can have a persistent effect on the way that you you experience things and you think. Yeah. And I, so I was just wondering if there's any sort of up-to-date 
studies about the effect on IQ. And sort of as a, a second part question, I wonder if there's any, if you think there's any difference between someone potentially with a low IQ and the experience they might have and someone with a high IQ and the experience they might have under the effects of psychedelics. Well, the latter has never been systematically studied. Researching IQ in anything is extremely challenging for all sorts of reasons. Uh, so, you know, we don't know. And you know, I mean, it's hard to go beyond that other than to say, you know, we, we get criticised because most of the people in our studies are relatively high IQ, relatively middle class. You know, most of them are graduates, um, whether it's actually the clinical studies or the research studies. So I think there is a relationship between IQ and interest in the mind and interest in experiencing things differently. And so that's about as far as I could go on that. Uh, in terms of whether these drugs improve your IQ, I'd be very, it depends what you mean. I think, I think the thing at IQ is, you know, there are many different facets of intelligence. And these, you know, the supposition was that these drugs would improve your creativity. And people have tried, and we tried, and, I, you know, when I started working with Amanda 15 years ago, she kept banging on, you know, do the test, prove it, improve creativity. But creativity tasks are kind of, the tasks you can do that in a reproducible way are pretty crude, and actually they don't show much effect. It's what you really want to test it, show how people change their whole mindset and their whole world schema. And there, of course, you know, you've got vast amounts of anecdotal evidence, you know, I mean, Apple, you know, the, at the time, you know, the largest company ever made was invented, you know, by a guy, Steve Jobs, who actually saw the con you know, the concept of bringing art and engineering together, you know, and that, that almost certainly came from a psychedelic experience rather than from simply adding up a, a spreadsheet. So I think you know, there's a lot of understanding and you know, so a lot of quality insights into humanity and into culture and you know, psychedelia changed music, it changed art, changed literature. You know, that's in a way a much more important output than changing IQ. Which could you do better if you took it to so maybe sort of microdosing of LSD to help? Would you be a better go player if you did that? Well, I mean, I think in, you know it's conceivable. It's conceivable that. Certainly there are gamers, a lot of gamers take cannabis because they think it opens up their mind and they're actually they're less focused on the, the guy with the gun in front. They're seeing other sides of the screen. It's conceivable that psychedelics would do that. Uh, it, they both have a similar effect to sort of or to open up the, um, break down the salience network and make it a bit less focused. So it's conceivable you could actually get better. Whether you get much better, I don't know. But you might think differently. You might decide not to play games at all and do something more interesting. <laughs> write books, poetry, paint. <laughs>